with me in your Bibles to this section of Romans, chapter 3. Found in the Pew Bibles on page 940. Today our focus is going to be on the end of this section uh, that Paul started on, uh, which I'm going to read a couple passages here just to kind of tie in the entire section of uh, this uh, case that Paul is making against all humanity. And what we're going to read today is actually, I, I... Titles of sermons are uh, uh, can be some people are very creative. I'm very pragmatic, <laughs> uh, but yet I, I, it could be you know uh, case closed, uh, you know uh, f- closing remarks. Uh, it could be uh, anything like that because they are the 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 uh, closing remarks and, and a verdict really uh, that Paul is. Uh, now placing upon, as he's addressing the Jews, the Jews and Gentiles, which means everybody uh, in, that's ever been born and will be born. And so why don't you uh, turn with me to chapter uh, 1, and we're going to look at verse 18 and read that section, which really is the beginning of this section where Paul... Uh, is laying out for us something that we should be very concerned about. And so let me pray before I read. Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we thank you for giving us this time and space this morning, this place to come, this place where we look forward to seeing each other and look forward to worship uh, forward to uh, look forward to uh, singing and to praying and to hearing your word, Lord. This is the the central activity of worship that you have given to us is hearing your voice and hearing your word. The very center of the reason why churches exist, and so, Lord, we pray that as we hear these words, that we know that. These are your words that can be trusted, and they are true, and they have been given to us, Lord, because you love us. And Father, we pray that we will hear them as if they were being breathed out to you from you right now, and they are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 18, chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and they became futile in their thinking, 
and their foolish, fu- foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not, they, they not only do them, but a give approval to those who practice them. Now let's turn to chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are, are ruin and misery, and the way of peace They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And may God be blessed by the reading of his word this morning. The last uh, verses here, verse uh, 19 and 20, actually in, in the last part, the last few words of verse 19, that the whole world may be held accountable to God is a, is a very, it's a legal term. It's a term that is only used once in the Bible, and this is the only place it's used. And the, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the definition of that word is liable to judgment. 
pertaining to a court of justice. So it's really a term of, of uh, the courtroom. And so this really is a case, a courtroom case, and a case that Paul is, is laying out before the readers of the book of Romans the, and all of us who have ever read it and to those who will read it. And it is, uh, as the language, and I wanted to read that before, in verse 18, the wrath of God, of, the wrath of God is, being, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And so there's a case that Paul is making that why is, as we see in verse 16 and 17, that he says that it is the power of God. And Paul is making the case for the gospel that it is the power of God and there is a great need for the power of God. Because in it is the righteousness of God. And we don't see that righteousness of God until God does something in our life, that power of the Holy Spirit, to change us. So what Paul is then trying to do to this church, this body of believers, is to make sure that in it they understand when he gets there, because he's never met any of these folks, is to understand where he's coming from. This is the gospel. This is the gospel according to what the Bible teaches. Not to what I'm teaching, but to what the Bible teaches. Because as he says in verse 10 of chapter 3, as it is written. So Paul has been giving evidence over and over and over again that there's no excuse that you can't say if you're a Jew that we have the law and we have circumcision. And he says, and, and the arguments and the objections, right? In the courtroom, there's objections, right? I object. One thing, I, I, when I was growing up, I, uh, I had thought about being a lawyer. And uh, actually was thinking about that in high school. And, you know, and I, now because of uh, the cable TV that we have, I can mention Perry Mason, and I think lots of people will know who Perry Mason is. Or how about uh, The Practice, or uh, uh, Matlock, or how about uh, Boston Legal? Uh, these shows uh, used to be on, and I, I enjoyed them uh, because I, 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 I like the, the courtroom scenes. But I got to tell you, one of my, my favorite experiences was when I, was, I did jury duty for six weeks. And that was, that was tons of fun. There were moments of complete boredom. But to, be, to watch it on TV, of course, it's a script and it's all made up and everything. But to be there, it's like, you know, it's like hearing a service or hearing the Word of God you know, on, on, uh, on uh, technology. But being there, it changes the whole, the whole organic feeling and the, the chemistry of being there. And, for me, it was, it was great. I just, the, the tension, right? The, the tension, the interplay, the nervousness, the animosity, the, the, uh, the way that both lawyers were trying to play each other and playing the witnesses that were up there and how they were building their case and how they objected and how nasty they could get and how they didn't care who was sitting in the chair. That person was a piece of meat. The one I went to, and somebody could just devastate and just rip this person to shreds. I saw a person uh, sit there and who was, uh, seemed to be a wonderful gentleman, a great father, but because of the case that he was in, he ended up lying to the feds. So after he was done testifying 
in the courtroom that I was in in Rancho County, he was then facing persecution, I mean prosecution and punishment from the federal government. And then we saw a guy get up there and talk about something and admit that he, he committed a crime while he was on, on the witness stand. Next thing you know, they said, uh, could the jury leave? We left. And we came back and the man was gone. And what they said, everything that gentleman just said, you forget completely. Because they had to expunge everything he said because he, he actually... Uh, he, um, testified and witnessed uh, to a crime that he, he talked about that he did. So, I mean, it was, it was six weeks. I, it was only supposed to be a couple weeks, but it was six weeks, and it was fun, and it was, it, was, it was this bantering back and forth that was exciting. And to hear all these pieces of it happening was really cool. And so I couldn't keep my eyes, and, and when you're reading this and you're doing the studying and you're hearing the commentary, it's all about this legal case and the words, as I just said here in this, this word accountable to God, this, this word that talks about that you are liable and you are in, in a courtroom was really kind of exciting to see that Paul, and I've mentioned it before, that God is, Paul is building his case and trying to, to rip the, these witnesses or these objections and the weaknesses of them so that he keeps on building and building. And right now what he's doing in verses 9 through uh, uh, 18 is, are these um, um, ber- verses from the Old Testament. So that's why he's going back, and what he's saying, I'm getting, I, I got a witness, and the witness is God himself, because it's not me, as you can see, he, does, he doesn't quote any verses in chapter 1, verses 18 on, he's laying it out there and says, this is who we are. But then he goes back to, he goes back and start in verse 10, and he says, it is written. So he goes back to the prophets, he goes back to uh, the Proverbs, he goes back to the Psalms. He goes back to so many sources in the Old Testament to make a case that what I'm telling is nothing new. This is what well, you were told all these years, and you studied them, and you memorized this word, and you guys don't know this. And so he was now using this uh, voice of God, these these verses of the Old Testament, as a, a witness that in his case, or as a doctor, a second opinion. Here's a second opinion. Let me go find out because here we are also doing a case, but we're also doing a diagnosis. A diagnosis of humanity. And we use the word, it's bad news. Well, let's, folks, I want to tell you this is horrific news. This is terrible news. It's not bad news, it's terrible news. Yet the commentators talk about. Verses 11 through 18 as a string of pearls. A string of pearls. Boy, I tell you, when I first read these, it didn't sound too, too glamorous to me, a string of pearls. And these are, these are very difficult things to read and to think about and to meditate on. Because Paul is going back now and he's making this final case, right? Because the Jews came up with all these objections. And um, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he, sa- they said, he says, what, what advantage does a Jew have? This is an objection he's heard, he's heard in the past. And, uh, and he says, oh, 
and what value is circumcision? He goes, much in every way. It's, you guys had a lot of benefits. You guys had the oracles of God. You had the sign of the covenant. You had all these benefits. But don't use this to think that you have any, any inside play on God, that there's some legacy going on or that there's some favoritism going on because when it comes to salvation, you don't have an in-ground at all just because you have these things. If you believe them, that would be different. But that's not the case. What he's saying here is that he says you cannot trust what you've done, done and, and who you are to, be, have, to find favorite, be a favorite person of God or find favoritism with God. And so then he goes in verse 9, what then, are Jews any better off? Well, he goes, well, no, no, not at all. Well, first he says they are, and then he says, no, not at all. And as I had said, not at all. When it comes to having peace with God, when it comes to having forgiveness of God, when it comes to, um, to having any special place in God's heart, he says, no, you, have, you and the Gentiles are on the same playing field. Because when it comes to being a sinner, you two are brothers and sisters. You two are in some of the same family. So he says, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And that's a, a key term, under sin. If you're under democracy, if you're under communism, if you're under a certain leader, you know what that means? That means under the rule of, under the kingdom of, under the authority. And so he is saying that everyone who's ever been born is under sin. And the word sin here is the word that means missing the mark. That was the first, one of the first words I remember learning as, a, as going to Bible school, of finding that that was amazing, is you know, shooting an arrow at a, at a target, and it's missing the mark, or falling short. Or it's like, you, know, you may have heard this, right? Somebody who's going to swim across the uh, Atlantic Ocean, and you, I can try to swim across the Atlantic Ocean, and I know some of you are probably much better swimmers than I am, or we can get an Olympic swimmer to go, and the answer is, he, they may go, you may go farther than me, they may go farther than all of us, but ain't nobody going to make it to the, to the other side. I'm standing on Cape Cod, and I'm looking, and Spain is over there, and there's nobody going to swim to Spain. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good we are, we all fall short. We all miss the mark. And that's what the word under, that's where the word sin is here. You miss the mark. You may have these aspirations. You may think that you're going there, but when, you, when, the, when it all end, in, in ends in, uh, in your life, you're going to find out that you've missed the mark. And you know what? There's no do-over. There's no mulligans. So he says, oh, let me, let me come from the from the law. Let me come from the Old Testament. He says, as it is written. And so we see here this, this uh, is broken down in a different section. So verses 10 to 12 is this general description of what's, what, what is humanity like and what's going on. So we see here, no one is righteous, no one is, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So we automatically see right off the beginning what? The universality of, of the condition, which means no one 
And in fact, if he says, you don't understand no one, let me tell you, it's no, not one. He makes sure that he duplicates it so you can understand that there are no exceptions to this. And righteousness means what? It means being right with God. It means being holy. It means being perfect. Well, we just read chapter 1, verse 18, where this is all started from, and he talks about that there is an unrighteousness and a really sad list of sins and behaviors and the way people think. Why? Because they failed to glorify God. They failed to acknowledge God as God. The fail, they failed to be thankful to God. So he says, no one does this. No, not one. No one understands. Now, we read in chapter 53, Brandon read the Old Testament for, me, for us. Turn with me to chapter 14. Because this chapter, I'm sorry, Psalm 14. It is chapter 14 in the book of Psalms, right? Where again, these verses are taken from. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now notice he says it's a fool. A fool in the Bible lacks understanding. So no one understands. So what he's saying that everyone is a fool. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not even one. They ha have, they, have they no knowledge of Acknowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You, should, you, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord rescues the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. He quotes right out of the New Testament, out of the Old Testament, because he wants them to know that it's not what he's writing. It's what God says. And no one seeks, right? No one seeks God. Psalm 42. I'll turn there. You don't have to read that, but Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food in day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival." So the Bible teaches that a person who does not acknowledge God, one who does not seek after God, one who does not give up everything as a person who finds out that buys a piece of land because he knows there's a treasure and does everything he can to get that land so he can get that treasure and give up everything they can to, to make sure that they, they have this relationship with God, 
That does, that's not happening. Nobody does those things. He goes, there's nobody. There are no seekers. Now, years ago, you may have under, you know, heard the whole seeker-sensitive movement, and uh, many people who were Reformed people believed that that was really not a genuine way of calling a church because if no one seeks God, how can you call the seeker sensitive? Remember, I mean, if you never has, had experienced it, you know, they didn't have Bibles in the churches. They, they didn't want to offend people. They made sure that they, if they had a scripture verse, they'd put it up. They didn't want people to feel uncomfortable coming to church because they may be seekers. Well, th this horrific news, Paul didn't care about if anybody was seeker sensitive or not. He says there's nobody who understands. There's a lack of knowledge. There's a lack of knowledge, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs says. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Isn't that a statement? They have become worthless. It says become futile in their thinking, he wrote, and Paul wrote in, in uh, the chapter 1. Together, all together, collectively. He's pulling everybody together, and he says, collectively, everyone, everyone is in this boat. And he says that they have become worthless. Now, they, that could offend lots of people, that God would consider someone worthless. But what he is saying here is that it is unprofitable. They have no value. They're like filthy rags. Salt that's lost its saltiness is good for what? Nothing. No one does good, not even one. So we see here that this is a general description of humanity. And then he goes on and he, it's, um, oh yeah, all, all who have turned aside. All have turned aside means that they have, uh, they have gone out of the way. They're like, Sheep that have gone astray in Isaiah 53. They have lost their way. And in the Bible, the path that God puts our feet upon, the way that God brings us uh, in our life with him, and it's part of the Proverbs, it's part of knowledge, it's part of the wisdom, how we navigate our way through life. And Jesus is the way. And so he says, everybody, everybody has turned aside. They're not looking for that way. They're looking for their own way. And then we see in verses 13 through 18, uh, actions and conduct. Notice what happens when we don't seek God, when we don't have our pathway to God, when we aren't seeking God's righteousness for our righteousness, something happens to humanity. It goes astray. It goes off. It's not what it's supposed to be. Term, you can look in your bulletin. And the, uh, at the beginning where we have those quotes before the service begins, right under the uh, C.S. Lewis <clears throat> quote, this is from uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 6. By this, Adam and, by this sin, Adam and Eve fell from their original righteousness in communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and abilities of soul and body. That means everything. 
Everything has been affected by sin. Now, I didn't always believe that. Even when I came to the Lord, I didn't believe that I was as bad as the Bible told me I was. Because the church, and there are denominations out there who do not look at humanity in that way. This is what they believe. See if it jives with what we're just reading in these these pearls. Sin does not control man's will. He is sick and nearsighted, but still able to obey, believe, and repent. He does not continually sin, for his nature is not completely evil. Now that's just the opposite of what the Reformed Church or the reform theology, or reformers believe, which is what our church and our denomination totally embraces, based upon everything we read and all the confessions and all the catechisms and everything is based upon this framework, which you have heard, the, the total depravity. This is what Paul is writing here. The total depravity, meaning that we are radically corrupt. Okay, Every, you know, the, the, uh, Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning that he says there, make sure that your, your life in Christ is worked out in every corner of your life. Make sure it's like dough that you push it to every corner of that pan. When you're making a pizza, make sure, man, you got that thing going right to the edge. Because you want it worked out. But we don't have to do that with sin. It's like yeast. It's the whole batch. The whole batch, it just goes right through. We don't, we don't have to do anything to sin. It's there in every part of our being. Not as bad as we could be. There are some of us who are worse than others. There are some people who are better than others. And we could be better. But when it comes... To God, our, fi- our righteousness is as filthy rags. Paul says he considers everything he was before dung. Because when it comes to coming to know the Lord, coming to understand what we've been saved from, this, this terrible, terrible news. It's great to read this. It's great to know this. This doesn't bother me anymore. Because I realize that someone has told me the truth. Someone knows what was wrong with me. My father was sick. My father was not feeling well. And the doctors told him he was just getting old. And he was not looking good, and he was uncomfortable. And finally they found out that he had a tumor in his pancreas. And he had pancreatic cancer. And yet, people were telling us all different things. And then finally, they diagnosed it, and they took it, and they saw it. So we wanted to find out how bad it was. So we go to the hospital with my father, and we're all in the room, and we're all tense because we know what that kind of verdict means. And so the doctor comes in, and we've known him a long time, and he's hemming and hawing, and my father looks at him, and he goes, 
Listen, Doc. He says, I've been through the Battle of the Bulge. I've been through Normandy. He says, I've been through World War II, and I made it out. Tell me the truth. I can handle it. And so he blank, came right out and told them that there was no hope. There was no way. There was nothing that they could do. And this is, what he, this is what Paul, this is what God does for us. God gives us a diagnosis. We don't go tell people that we've got a great plan for their life. Our evangelism isn't about making people feel good. Our evangelism is about telling people the truth. And if our evangelism does not involve sin, then we are not preaching them the gospel. Because that's what Paul is doing here. So why should we be better than Paul? This is what Paul wants us to do. This is what God wants us to do. God wants us to be truthful with them. And not tell them, oh, this, the gospel does this for your life. And God does this for your life. And these, you know, people want to write their testimonies. And I'm all for testimony. But I want to know the testimony of God out of the Bible. I'm, it's important and it's great that your life has changed, but you know what? You don't need Jesus to change your life. You don't need Jesus to change your addictions. You don't need Jesus to help you with parenting and money. You don't need him. It helps. He's got, he's got wisdom for us. But we need Jesus for is because there's no one righteous. No, not one. So if we witness to somebody and we fail to tell them how terrible the news is, but how great it is to know that, then we are failing to be faithful to the gospel. And there are many people out there that you find a hard time when you listen in the messages that they never mention sin because they want people to come back. Notice what he says, their throat. Now these actions. Look at, at the action of the mouth. You know, James has a whole chapter, right? On words, on the tongue. Other New Testament uh, tells us about our words. How important are our words? You know, now that we're in Christ, make sure that our words are for edifying and for building up. Not for tearing down. Their throat is an open grave. Now, folks, if you had something dead in a grave for a while, and then you go back and open it up, how ugly it is, how terrible it smells. This is what, how God describes us. Our throat is an open grave, the stench They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Nate sent out this week the uh, words of Jesus from uh, Mark. And he says in chapter 7, verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all you, and understand. Right? Understand. There is nothing outside of a person that's going, to, going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he said, 
And he entered the house and left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you are also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Sin, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, mor- mor- murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. The list goes on. He says, all these things come out from within, and they defile a person. It's Paul writing in chapter 1. So when our heart is wrong, where every facet of our being is contaminated and is defiled by sin. We are under sin. There's a difference between under sin and under grace, right? There's two categories. You're either under sin or you're under grace. Now, you can say, I don't think I'm that bad. Right? I mean, you, you're, you're going to hear people and you read this and say, I don't think I do that, right? I, I don't think I'm that bad with my tongue. I don't think I deceive anybody. I don't think that, you know, that, there's, that I have a poisonous mouth. But you know, folks, there's a lot of poison that we have over coffee sometimes. And in our conversations, and in our texting, and in our social media, there's, there's little bombs. No matter how little they are, they're poison. It doesn't take much. And you don't know that, but when they, you, know, you don't see the poison goes in to the body when the, when the, the uh, python or whatever bites you, or the ass bites you. But you can know that when it bites you, that it is injecting this poison into your body to kill you. And poison kills. And our mouth and our tongue and our words kill. And deceives. And then he goes on in verse 15, 16, and 17 about our conduct. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. They cannot know because they don't know peace. Because they're looking for peace in all the wrong places. They're looking for peace in people and in things. We all do that. And Jesus is the only peace that we can have, that God gives us his peace in his son. That's the only way we can find it. But if we have nothing to do with the Lord and people and humanity, and this is an indictment against all people. So when you see people and you live with unbelievers or you're out there and you're working and you're just existing, this is what God sees. This is who people are. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What kind of fear is that? It's not being afraid of God. But as Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 28, he says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe or fear. For our God is a consuming fire. What is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of God? It is a reverent fear. It is a fear of awe, of understanding who this is. And being struck by his majesty. 
and his greatness and his goodness and his glory. And to want to participate in giving him that. That's what the fear of the Lord is. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom because once we understand who he is and what he has done for us and what he offers us, our life should change. And how we navigate through life should change. So how we speak and how we think and how we act should all be transformed. I have set the Lord always before me, the psalmist writes in Psalm 16. Set the Lord before me. And as we read in our, uh, our service today, what does before me mean? It means that the, the very first commandment says that there's no one to take the place of God. God needs to be always in front of us. Nothing before us other than God. Don't place anyone or anything before us because that's what turns our eyes away from the Lord. Luke says in chapter 16, you are those, Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. That's what we're working for. We're looking to please men. We're looking to find our justification, whether it is being a people pleaser or trying to build up your career or trying to do whatever you can to succeed. We're looking by justification to men. But God knows your heart, he says. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Remember what God said in, in, uh, to Noah in chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Bible just is so clear about the radical corruption of humanity. And that's good for us to know. That's the truth about who we are. It's the truth about what God sees in the people that we love who don't know Christ. And so we need to pray that God would give us the opportunity to be able to say that to them in a way that does not sound like it's coming from us, but that it's coming from the Lord. But yet again, they may not accept it because unless the Holy Spirit is working in their life, as Paul writes in Corinthians, they will not accept it. And even if they do, they may accept it for a little while, but yet if it is not fully the work of the Spirit in your life, they may give the impression, and I've had that in people in my life. I've led them to the Lord, they've rose right up, and the next thing you know, their life fell apart. And it wasn't that they stayed with the Lord, it was just that they gave it up. Because it didn't work out as they thought that the Bible told them. I didn't tell them that, but they thought that that's what God was going to do for them. And so, we, so then we see the, the very ending summary here. Now we know, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. When the verdict is read, and when the evidence is rolled out, 
what more can we say? What does Job, Job says in, in, in 40, Job 40, he says this, Look, I am of little worth. What can I answer you? I'll put my hand over my mouth. When God tells us the verdict, when God tells us who we are, when God tells us the truth, we can't come back with anything else. What can we come back to? There are no objections. It's done. The evidence is clear. We are sinners. God is a consuming fire. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to run to the only hope that we have. And as he says, verse 22, which we're going to look at in July, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's our hope. That's why we tell people the truth. And folks, if this is so terrible, how great is grace? How great is God's love? That he knows that these are the kind of people that he's died for. We're not perfect at all. In fact, we still have this kind of nature within us. And he knows that we are going to slip and we are going to fail. But if God has sent his son to die, and if he has sent his son to die this perfect death, then folks, it isn't, again, any works on our part, right? He says, we now know that the law says when it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, meaning the entire Old Testament, not just the first five books, because why? Because when he quoted here, right, all these, these pearls, he quoted from Psalms, he quoted from Proverbs, he quoted from the prophets. He's talking about just not the law, but the entire book of the Old Testament, the law. For by the works of the law, no human being will ever, ever can be justified because through the law comes the knowledge of sin and not forgiveness. No one can find forgiveness in the Bible, in the, in the, in the, in the law, excuse me, in the law. Nobody can find forgiveness in the law. It's not meant to give us forgiveness. Only Jesus is the one who gives us forgiveness. Even though all of the sacrifices and all of the things that point to Christ, the law is pointing us to make us even worse than we really are. It incites us to sin by telling us not to. Well, I pray that, that we see this indictment we see this case by paul is something that we do not run away from that it's it's difficult it's terrible it's horrific news but it's the news that makes grace great it's the news that is grace then greater than all of our sins it's the grace that only the bible tells us to tell people about so i pray that god will give you the opportunity to be able to take the time to thank God for the truth that he's told us, for how terrible we really are, 
And yet, how wonderful he is to even offer people like this a new beginning and a new life and a forgiveness and a new birth. So let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that is greater than all of our sins. We thank you, Jesus, for taking upon yourself this punishment that these people deserve, the people that are being listed here, the, the kind of conduct, the kind of corrupt people, the people that we really are, Lord. You have been very clear to tell us, and I pray that we would never lose sight of the fact of how sinful we are which would make us then so grateful. Because then, Lord, we would realize what debt has been paid for us and the great debt that's been given to the, the great debt that has been paid for us and the forgiveness and the salvation that you have given to us in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on you, Jesus, as we are thankful for your work in our lives. We're thankful for your care. We're thankful for all the ways that you continually point us to yourself and to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things, Lord, because you desire us to. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.